Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to a special noon edition program live from the Petty Pit Stop Cafe in the Holman and Sons building in downtown Terre Haute. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Max Jones, the editor of the Terre Haute Tribune Star. And we're going to talk today about Wabash Valley Resources plans in Vigo and Vermilion counties. We have three guests with us today, starting at the other end. We have John Rupp, an IU professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Health uh, and a carbon sequestration expert. Kerwin Olson is in the middle. He is the executive director of the Citizens Action Coalition. And Greg Zeller is vice president of external affairs for the Wabash, for Wabash Valley Resources. You can, those who are at home can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Uh, we won't be taking any questions on the air today. We also will be taking your questions from the audience. If you just fill out your three-by-five cards and send them to our producer, Benta Boutier. So I want to start the program today by just turning to Greg Zeller and saying, Greg, what, what does Wabash Valley have in mind? What are you planning to do? here in Vigo. Well, thanks for having us, Bob. You know, we're uh, very excited about this project. I've been in state and federal government uh, working in the, let's say, the focus on Indiana for most of my career. And this is really one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in terms of the opportunities for our state. Uh, In short, this is going to be a fertilizer plant. So we manufacture uh, anhydrous ammonia, which is used in the eastern corn belt. So it'll be the only fertilizer plant in Indiana Uh, It has a huge market uh, to serve. I think it will reduce some of the costs for the agricultural, particularly the corn farmers. It helps ethanol. Uh, But what's unique and what I'm most excited about is the fact that instead of having a smokestack that puts carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere uh, that we're all kind of focused on trying to avoid, but it has a, a low to no carbon footprint by sequestering the carbon. And by that, I mean... We'll liquefy the carbon dioxide and then inject it uh, a mile or so down under the bedrock. So this is a very safe process that uh, really prevents the carbon dioxide from going into the atmosphere. All right. So I want to ask Kerwin, why is this not a good idea? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, first of all, appreciate uh, appreciate you having us on today. Yeah, we have been... Uh, you know, opposed to the idea of carbon capture and storage for a very long time, working on the issue for uh, 20 years or so. We've got a lot of issues with the project, and I'll be as as brief as I can. But, you know, looking at the three different components here, first of all, with respect to carbon capture itself, um, that's an unproven uh, technology, uh, even by the own admission of the state of Indiana in the letter that uh, they wrote to the EPA, the IURC, IDEM, and OECC, even acknowledge that 90% capture has never been demonstrated, uh, that CCS itself is expensive and ripe with operational issues and simply not ready for prime time. So number one, we object to the idea that carbon capture uh, at the plant site is a proven technology, and we have a pending air permit at IDEM that puts no requirements uh, on Wabash Valley resources to capture carbon. So um, those are potentially sort of uh, empty promises, if you will, because we've heard about carbon capture for a very long time, and what we've seen is failure after failure after failure. Matter of fact, the funding for CCS from the 2009 energy bill was, was one of the biggest failures uh, the federal government has, have, has ever realized in terms of wasting millions and millions of dollars of projects that never came to fruition. Uh, and quickly also on the other components, we have uh, you know, the sequestration side of things where they uh, profess that they can, quote-unquote, safely uh, sequester 
uh, carbon underground. However, that, that technology uh, is undemonstrated, has not been proven, and is rife with risks that are, that are incredibly, incredibly real. First of all, the injection sites, they have not yet done uh, proper geological characterization uh, on those well sites. They have not done 3D seismic testing to evaluate uh, the actual seismic risk at those sites, which should be of concern to residents in the area when you consider that uh, those injection sites sit within the Wabash Valley seismic zone, and there has been historic earthquake activity uh, out here in this area. So there are real concerns about the impact on seismic activity, earthquake activity. There are significant concerns around water quality, uh, the migration of that supercritical CO2 through pore space, uh, through seams, through coal shafts and others, not only uh, getting into waterways and contaminating water supplies, but also rising to the surface causing asphyxiation. CO2 is heavier than air, displaces oxygen, and could threaten uh, the health of, of human and, and animals. So we reject the notion that CCS is a proven technology uh, because it simply isn't either on the capture side or on uh, the storage side. And lastly, the last thing I'll say is we reject the idea that there's any reduction in CO2 emissions from this facility, considering, first of all, if they are successful in capturing carbon, that's only coming from the process. Those are process emissions. Those aren't emissions related to the power generation necessary uh, to run that project. And what we have here is a facility building a new source of CO2 to emit. They're not reducing anything because Congress, you know, has monetized CO2, given CO2 an enormous value. So what we have in Indiana are companies that want to create new point sources of CO2 to allegedly capture, which still has yet to be proven. And uh, this is bad for taxpayers. This is technology that requires enormous amounts of public subsidies, and it requires uh, public policies that take away people's personal property rights through condemnation, eminent domain, uh, uh, insulates these companies from liability and puts public on the hook, puts property owners on the hook, and every single project moving forward quite simply is an experiment that exposes taxpayers, the public, and communities to enormous amounts of risks that are very, very real. Okay, Kerwin, thanks. Max? Yeah, thanks, Bob. And uh, first of all, let me, let me kind of express uh, our gratitude to Noon Edition and WFIU for uh, choosing to come over to Terre Haute today for this program. Uh, it's, it's great having you here. This is an important subject, uh, a major topic for us, and it's, it's great having you here to participate in the discussion. So I'm going to turn to Professor Rupp, and uh, he is in the unenviable posi uh, position of being the independent expert uh, in, this, uh, in this discussion. Uh, and I'm going to ask you uh, kind of a two-parter two here. Number one is could you give us uh, the, the big-picture view of uh, carbon capture sequestration uh, that is being discussed here from, from your research, and then also how your knowledge of this subject and research apply to this particular project that is being uh, developed in Vigo and Vermilion counties? Sure. Uh, thank you again for having us here. Pleasure to be on the panel. Uh, from a big picture, carbon sequestration is, is a technology that uh, captures generally from a point source uh, high concentration of CO2 and then uh, compresses it, dehydrates it, and then conveys it, and then and the storage or sequestration is done in the subsurface. So it's a, a part of a portfolio of carbon management kinds of technologies. Oftentimes uh, it's thought of as, as a, uh, a place where large volumes from a single source, such as an ethanol plant or a, or a, or a, a carbon uh, plant, such as a utility, intense source can be used as a, as a, a place to concentrate this. Um, the technology has been around for 40 plus years. Uh, I'm a former employee of Exxon. I was involved in that in the early 80s. Uh, I worked in the uh, Labarge platform up in Wyoming on it. Uh, there were uh, Sheep Mountain and other places in Wyoming and in Colorado where that CO2 was brought down by pipeline. Uh, from uh, natural deposits of CO2 and used for enhanced oil recovery. So it's uh, most all of our CO2 that's captured and conveyed through pipelines now is used to enhance the production of oil and gas. So there's a series of, of uh, places where that happens throughout uh, the southern portion, Permian Basin and southern parts of Texas and uh, Wyoming. There's some other spots. So it's a, it's, I, would, I would contrast a bit with, with Kerwin's comment that it's an unproven technology. On many levels, it's a, a technology that's tried and true and been utilized by the oil and gas industry for many, many years. So segregation or separation of gases is a, a classic uh, uh, 
technology that chemical and, and petroleum engineers have used for many, many years. Um, the conveyance of, of, of CO2 through pipelines is, is tested and true on large scales, interstate pipelines existing from Colorado, New Mexico, down into West Texas. So uh, decades of, of, of good experience in this regard. And then in the subsurface, my area of expertise, there's plenty of experience showing that CO2 once injected into a reservoir, whether it be an oil and gas reservoir or a saline aquifer, a, 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 a porous or a permeable member that has lots of salt, salt water in it, it can displace that out and be securely um, uh, stored and monitored. From a perspective of, of this project and in the context of the general, con uh, the general setting of sequestration, um, just across the border over in Illinois, the, the Archer Daniels Midland projects have shown that large volumes of CO2 can be successfully captured. That's an ethanol system and then compressed, dehydrated and conveyed via a short pipeline to, a, to a, a well and then injected and stored in a, in a saline aquifer and monitored for the kinds of things that, that occur when nicely itemized. That is, is there, is there a possibility it can induce seismicity? Can it push on the reservoir or the seal enough to cause earthquakes? Can it uh, seep out or leak out over uh, short or long periods of time such that it would go up and contaminate groundwater? So those are the kinds of things that were heartily investigated at the ADM site. They've done it on two wells. First was a million uh, tons over three years, then a million tons per year. So those are both quite successful in terms of uh, capture from a, from a from a point source and then injection into a saline aquifer. So um, as far as extending that over to this corner of the world, there was a project, a carbon safe project, it was termed for uh, Wabash Valley in which a number of, of uh, important pieces of information were, were uh, uh, gathered. A borehole was drilled to the reservoir and investigated both the reservoir properties and the seal properties of the, of the units that would form the confining unit over the, over the, uh, the storage zone. And those have all been assessed and tested in a, in a pretty hardy manner. Um, there's also 2D seismic, Kerwin mentioned 3D seismic. There's two-dimensional seismic, a series of lines that were run to investigate the possibility of the presence of faults or fractures which may cause the reservoir, the seal, to fail. And in those cases, those were all shown to be uh, without faults or fractures in, in, the, in the information that's been garnered so far. So it was those kinds of data. Much of that data was used by the EPA as they assessed the Class 6 permit applications by the company. And, and have, I've looked at that data, and there's, and there's quite a robust data set. And it, and it shows a pretty substantial um, and, and, and marked, uh, a good site for, for sequestration, I would say. John, I've got a couple follow-ups that right. actually come into me here. Cool. Uh, one is uh, somebody wants to know who who pays for your services. How do they know that that you are impartial? You're a, uh, an employee of Indiana University now, right? The, uh, that would be I'm a state employee, so I, I was a, a university employee. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, and then the other question is uh, has come in that says uh, you say CO2 storage has been happening for decades. Have you seen a project of this scale and injected into this kind of geology? So, so the, the two projects I mentioned, the Arthur Daniels Midland uh, projects over in, in um, Decatur, Illinois, are the analogous scale-wise. And so, so you have to think about rate. And this project, as proposed, is, is over a, a multi-year time. So it's a similar kind of rate. And so the ultimate volumes would be similar to the kinds of things that were evaluated and assessed over at uh, ADM. Okay. Max, do you have a Yeah, just one follow-up also uh, for you, uh, Professor. Uh, in terms of the way this is regulated, um, uh, what is really required? What, what's important for people to know that are concerned about this, uh, about how the regulation takes place? Who's in charge of the regulation? And, and is that something that people should be able to trust um, is being done properly. So the regulation is, is quite complex depending on where in the capture, conveyance, and sequestration stream you are. I'm going to defer to my colleagues. They may want to talk a little bit farther upstream about whether on the capture side or the pipeline side, who and what is the, the regulatory body for those. So for the, for the well itself, that's regulated by the EPA, the reservoir, and the, and the seal. This is the EPA under their underground injection control program. So this is Region 5 out of, out of Chicago. Um, so that's just for... Uh, the, the well and the, and the reservoir and the seal. It's important to remember that the UIC program is a part of the Safe Drinking Water Act, and this is only uh, statutorily over the protection of groundwater. So 
in terms of other aspects of, of concern about what, what was the long-term fate of the CO2, how, how could it be used for other things, those are outside the purview of the, of the EPA's permitting. Um, the, the pipelines are, uh, in, in our state, are, are regulated by the IURC's Pipeline Safety Division, and they are in co coordination with the Department of Transportation, FIMSA, or Pipeline Hazardous Materials Administration. That's a federal agency. So there's a, a myriad of, of, of agencies, um, both federal and state, that, that handle some of that. And I'm sure there's other clean air things, IDEM things that are up further upstream. Greg, you're taking notes, yeah. I see. Well, so. I was going to just correct uh, <laughs> In the in the um, in our pipeline, it'll be regulated by the DNR. Uh, so I had the same question about why it's not IURC, but uh, the statute has it uh, regulated by the Department of Natural Resources. Um, it is in coordination with the rest of the state, so that, you know there will be other people that they can rely upon. But that's just a quick correction. Uh, I kind of wish it was the IURC. Okay, Kerwin, do you? Yeah, well, I'm glad pipelines came up because we're also very, very concerned about pipelines and pipeline safety. And with respect to the regulation of CO2 pipelines, that is incredibly vague and unclear, even by the admission of FIMSA. We have the federal government right now uh, drafting new rules for the regulation of CO2 pipelines. That draft rule will not be available until October 2024. That's a draft rule, not a final rule. We also have a rulemaking process that will begin at some point uh, at DNR related to what CO2 regulation will look like in the state of Indiana. But right now, uh, that is an industry-only private working group at DNR where the public is not invited into that conversation. So we have no idea what those CO2 rules will, pipeline rules will look like in Indiana. And so when we know we're not going to have federal rules till at least 2025 at the earliest, when we know we're probably not going to have state rules until at least 2025 at the earliest, and keep in mind these are rules to govern the regulation of CO2 around the safety to the public and the health and safety of communities. It is fundamentally irresponsible and unfair, we believe, to allow the construction and the transport of CO2 pipelines unless and until the federal agencies and the state agencies in charge of putting in place health and safety standards for those pipelines have those promulgated and finalized. And so they're putting the cart way above the horse here. Um, and we have no idea how CO2 pipelines are going to be regulated. It is exceptionally vague, exceptionally unclear, um, and that, that, that's worrisome to communities. Greg, can you respond to that? Well, a little bit. I think, uh, you know, in your question that came in about uh, the professors who pays him, you know, you can already hear the, let's say, the public concern. They don't necessarily trust the government. So I was in the government for 25 years. Uh, they don't trust science. Uh, so I think the opportunity to raise fear among the public is out there just with the lack of trust in the programs and the policies that have been developed over the last 25 years. So the last three administrations in Washington have all seen carbon sequestration as the way to reduce our carbon emissions into the atmosphere. And anybody who's concerned about the climate and some of the issues dealing with carbon uh, really should be focused on these policies. But we're already committed to carbon sequestration. Nobody's getting a new permit to emit huge amounts of carbon dioxide. So you won't have any new power sources. You won't have any uh, steel mills. You won't have any power plants. You won't have any, uh, any of the major utilizers. So uh, I think Kerwin really, you can hear it in his voice, the the concerns that he tries to raise with the public is all based on fear of something new. Uh, they, were, they were against it when we had a pipeline uh, that had to be built. They've been against every highway that I've been involved with, I-69, uh, all the things that they've opposed. I've spent most of my career trying to be uh, for something and telling people we need to have some type of new system. We can't get continue to pollute our atmosphere, and this is the, the one that everybody has focused on, the federal government, the state government. I want to at least point out that when he says that we're not going to be liable, that's part of our requirement to put money up front into a fund that the EPA will regulate to make sure that we're handling everything properly. 
on the property rights. Indiana is the first state through our legislature to grant the ownership of this core space, which is going to be very valuable in the future. It's now going to be in Indiana. We're the first ones to say that the property owners, the surface owners, now have rights to that. And in the future, that'll be something that everybody in Indiana ought to support. So all these things that you know, raise fear and concern. Let's not have any new technology. It's untested. It's unsafe. That raises the fear of people who, frankly, don't trust government. They don't trust science. And, unfortunately, they don't trust the media. So that puts you two in the box. We, yeah, we've seen lots of issues like this over the years. I, I want to turn to John and just ask, you know, what, what Greg is saying is that just because you know, a lot of institutions aren't, aren't trusted. That brings up a lot of concerns. You've seen projects like this around the country. I mean, how, how significant has been opposition in other places? And have they been, have projects been stopped, altered? Can you just talk about the, 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 the situations on the ground? Sure. Um, the, the, this, the, the areas that I mentioned, that is West Texas, the Permian Basin, uh, southwest Wyoming, these are oil and gas um, areas producing with communities that are used to much of the technology that's implicit inside of sequestration. So in many of those circumstances where those projects were implemented, bringing, bringing CO2 down from northern New Mexico into, into the Permian Basin or southwest uh, Wyoming up into, into the northeast corner and up into Montana, these are places where most of the, of the communities had some exposure to the, to the basics of the technology, and so they were more welcoming and more understanding. In areas where um, uh, there is no knowledge or has been no knowledge, Knowledge essentially about these kinds of things, there's oftentimes suspicion. Um, we've seen a, a tremendous pushback uh, from the, the mid-continent states, the midwestern states, on a couple of pipelines that are proposed um, that that would be bringing uh, CO2 from a series of ethanol plants down into the into the uh, center of the Midwest and into Illinois for sequestration. And I would say fundamentally that's because um, there's a misunderstanding about uh, what a pipeline is, how it functions, what property rights are and how those can be uh, beneficial if, if managed well and, and uh, relative to, to the unknown. So there's, so there's fundamentally, in terms of sequestration, a, a lot of pushback relative to places where it's unknown. And, and, and the economics are, are tough on it. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a very good economic proposition at this point. The, the economics without the federal subsidization, the 45Q, are, are very tough to, to, to make a go. And so when people say it's, it's an un, untested or untrue in terms of, of vi viability, from a technical standpoint, I don't think that's correct. But from an economic standpoint, it is probably a pretty good critique. I'm going to let Max get in here in a minute. But I've got a couple questions that have come in that I want, want to get in. Um, this one comes from the audience. If displacing saline aquifer, then where is the unconsumable water displaced to? If there uh, are not the very, is there not the very real risk of driving the unpotable water into the aquifer used for the populations? Right. So, uh, yes, that's that's a, that's a concern. Um, I worked on a project in uh, Illinois some years ago where we modeled. Uh, high volume sequestration sites. I think we had 30 or 40 different sites around the, the state thinking this would be a robust um, uh, model of how, how could, we, could we even simulate pushing uh, saltwater uh, with a CO2 plume up and, and have it in, in, in interfere with the potable water system. So, so on a single source like this, the, um, the, the, the amount of CO2 relative to the amount of saltwater is so infinitesimal that it really doesn't have any impact. There's a, there's a pressure front that would extend out further than the physical front of the of the CO2, but the but the saline aquifer can certainly manage a very small volume. And in terms of relative volumes, there are billions and billions and billions of, of, of tons or barrels of salt water relative to uh, a tens of millions. So so the so the the the, the aquifer can can. Elastic is not exactly the right word, but it can it can respond to that and not be uh, not be uh, endangered. Max, hey, Bob and Max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if I may. Oh, sure. Go ahead. I feel a little bit like I'm at a presidential debate here, <laughs> um, but I, I just want to respond to Mr. Zeller as far as what he said about CAC, and I will just unequivocally say CAC makes absolutely no apologies 
for the work that we've done over the years in working to protect the public interest, working to protect the public health and well-being of Indiana citizens, uh, working hard to protect consumers uh, from high energy prices and ensuring access to services. We make absolutely no apologies for the work that we do. Uh, we are proud that next year will be our 50th anniversary and we have tens of thousands of supporters across the state of Indiana who support the work that we do. And we also make no apologies for uh, bringing transparency to what is going on in the halls of government. One of the reasons people don't trust the government is they simply don't know what is going on. And so groups like, my, like Citizens Action Coalition and others down at the State House that inform the public about what is going on. I'm well aware of the narrative out there right now that this, this outrage in, in, in West Terre Haute is somehow because Kerwin Olson and Citizens Action Coalition are fear-mongering. We fundamentally absolutely unequivocally reject that. You can look at what is going on across the Midwest and the Great Plains. I am getting calls from people in Illinois, in Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota. There are extraordinary tens of thousands of citizens across the Midwest right now pushing back on the threat that CCS is bringing to these communities. So to try to marginalize this issue, this fear-mongering from the Citizens Action Coalition, we fundamentally unequivocally reject that notion and stand by our record. I want to. Thank you. Uh, the, I, I do want to note that uh, that we did have a question for the audience that would have gotten into the same thing, and I appreciate your anticipating that and bringing that up. Max. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. If if I may, kind of turn our attention to the individual landowners, property owners, people that are living in the area uh, that will be most directly affected. And I think we all understand the concern that they've got to be feeling uh, when something like this encroaches on their lives, on their property. So they want to be talked to responsibly and honestly and transparently. That's the, first and foremost, that's what they want. So I'll ask each of you to summon your most responsible and fair uh, brief argument to them, explaining to them what your position and, and whether they should or should not be concerned uh, or at least overly concerned and why they should be able to trust the government or the company or, 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 the, or the organization that Kerwin represents. Um, uh, I think they need to hear from you in a face-to-face -face way. So yeah. I, I will go to you first, uh, Mr. Zeller. Well, um, you know, there's an awful lot of injection wells throughout Indiana. In fact, I think it's 18,500. Uh, so there's a lot of injection. Uh, into the, you know, deep caverns below us. So that's been going on. There's never been any notice. So one of the unique parts about our Class 6 permit, and some of it is it's new, so there's a lot of new technology, uh, but we will be able to provide notice to everybody that we're going to monitor where the carbon dioxide spreads. And Indiana's legislature uh, decided to have a payment process. So even though this is a pilot, uh, it'll be the only state uh, that has set up a process where we identify the ownership and also have a payment plan so that people who are uh, impacted, so they, they have the uh, carbon dioxide a mile or so underneath their farm, uh, will be able to be paid in a fair and transparent way. So we'll monitor it. It'll be the safest uh, systems uh, but a lot of it is because it's new and we have new technologies. Uh, we haven't upgraded our technology for other pipelines, but this one is going to be the safest uh, in the field. Kerwin? Sorry, did I cut you off? No, no, Greg? go ahead. No, what, what question exactly? I'm am I asking you to? To, 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 to speak responsibly and honestly about your position in this, and, and in this case, why they should be concerned and should stand up uh, against this. Uh, I want you to speak directly to the people that, that are most concerned about this. Well, I think I've articulated what our concerns are. Number one, we are concerned about uh, uh, wasting enormous amounts of public resources, tax dollars, and other things that could be better spent uh, on better projects. There's a better path forward uh, with respect to, to clean energy and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And I think, you know, regarding these, these, these Class 6 wells and this process of sequestration and, and carbon capture, uh, we, we reject the idea of using using words like safe and proven 
um, when that's just simply not true from our perspective. And again, I'll echo the words of the state of Indiana, IDEM, the OECC, and the IORC, who said carbon capture is, is, is not, has not been demonstrated uh, at this scale and is rife with uh, operational issues and uh, expensive cost issues. So the concerns that are being raised uh, about seismic activity, about water contamination, uh, about possible asphyxiation, as well as the violation of, 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 of property rights and other issues are, are, are very real. So I, I, I think these concerns are valid. And at what point, at what point do we say a CO2 storage facility uh, is safe? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. The other issue that hasn't been discussed is the long-term ownership, the long-term stewardship uh, of those underground CO2 emissions. And regarding Wabash Valley Resources, law expressly states um, uh, that after 12 years, the state may assume ownership uh, of, the, uh, of the underground stored CO2. And every other project, the state will assume ownership of that underground carbon dioxide. Again, putting taxpayers, putting the public on the hook for assuming all of the costs associated uh, with the storage, monitoring, regulation of those facilities. So again, folks should be very, very concerned uh, about the potential risks related to environment and public health, as well as the financial risks related uh, to the public dole, taxpayers, and ratepayer wallets. Professor Rupp, your closing comment, how do you speak to the people that are most concerned about this? You know, if I were a landowner and the, and the prospect of, uh, of either a pipeline or an injection well were, were put to me and, and I was approached by a company to do it, um, I'm in a, uh, an empowered position. I have the power to make a contract. Uh, this, in, in our nation, property rights are, the, are, the, are, are private contractual agreements done in the state. So, so one can put into that contract the concerns that they have. If they're concerns about uh, when a pipeline is made or, or, or if the route is particular relative to their practices, if it's an agricultural system, if they're, if they're a farmer of some kind, um, this, this can be uh, put into a contract. So, so if you're... If you're in a place where you have that opportunity, it's much like in the oil and gas industry. You can put all kinds of, of, of uh, conditions, uh, potentially even bonding, into that that would protect, protect you as a landowner and allow you then to, to make uh, decisions on the management of that activity that's happening. You know, the bigger issues about whether it's economical, what the, what the, what the taxpayer to the, to the whole, you know, the U.S. tax base and all that, those are kind of out of your control as a landowner, but, but you do have good, good control over what you can do in terms of activities where and when on your property. And, and there's lots of precedents for that, and there's, and there's good ways of, of structuring a contract. So I think the, the landowners are actually in a pretty good position. All right. We have a, a question that's come in that talks about um, a 2020 report that says the Archer Midland Daniels project in Decatur, Decatur, Illinois, is not meeting its goals by about half, and carbon pollution has increased substantially overall. Is that true? John, Greg, Cart, Kerwin? I'm not aware of exactly that report, so we'd have to look at it in more detail. Actually, the, the Okay. The ADM uh, project that I was in involved with, the first one, uh, absolutely met its goals. Its goal was to inject a million tons of CO2 in a period of three, uh, three years and, and uh, um, 998,000 uh, tons at the end of one, one once at the end of the cycle. It was, it was absolutely uh, successful and, and uh, the monitoring was quite successful and the, um, and the establishment of the practices was, was honed. So I'm not sure what the report's in reference to, so. Yeah. Of the, of the storage. You know, the, uh, what, 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 what we're not looking at is a life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions from these projects. And what, what we're realizing is that is there actually a reduction in total greenhouse gas emissions from these projects coming online? That's why CAC and others have submitted comments saying a full greenhouse gas analysis should be required as part of this process because, again, we're only capturing um, you know, process emissions if, if they actually uh, capture those emissions. And we're ignoring um, all of the emissions uh, from the power generation necessary, uh, the fuel source. Let's keep in mind, Wabash Valley Resources, you know, one of their feedstock is going to be petroleum coke, extending the life of a refinery. What are the emissions at that refinery? What are the emissions related to transporting that petroleum coke? And so we, and look at the work of Dr. Gruber. 
up at University of South Bend who has looked at projects and said these, most of these projects look like an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, not a reduction. That's why we believe this is absolutely a false solution to climate change and should not be proposed as a solution to climate change because what we're realizing is that when you look at the life cycle from cradle to grave, emissions are actually increasing. The, the, I should say this report's from Investigate Midwest, and it says Archer Midland Daniels, one of the world's largest agri agribusinesses has yet to make good on its promise to capture a million tons of carbon a year at its Decatur, Illinois facility. So that's, a, that's correct. Again, order. underscoring the issues yeah. with actually capturing the CO2. Right. Okay. Uh, we have another question. Uh, if the cost is $24 million to the pipeline, uh, to pipeline the carbon to my house, why not save that money and pump it under Wabash Valley Resources? It's a very specific question, obviously. So, is it, do you have a response, Greg? Sure. Well, we've, uh, we've already submitted uh, the two um, plans, and they've both been given uh, a draft permit. So uh, it would, the fact that we could in the future do that, uh, that's true. I mean, we could do that. I think the idea of having a pipeline uh, to two injection sites ended up being the first one that uh, really was proven out to be successful. We, we understand there's going to be, let's say, people never want a pipeline in their backyard. Uh, it's the same way with a highway. It's the same way with everything else. Uh, so uh, the, the fear that there's going to be a pipeline rupture uh, is always something that's raised to, again, going back to, I know you're not fear-mongering, but, you know, a rupture of a pipeline, uh, which there's pipelines everywhere. And I think the fact that we had these two injection sites, having it on the plant where we're also going to be having uh, the anhydrous ammonia uh, seemed like it was more complicated. So it's, there's a lot of good reasons to do that, and I think it just was part of the whole plan. All right. Uh, another question that's come in. What options do landowners have to opt out of this project? The state Senate bill passed this year suggests they would have to take legal action. Is that correct? If a landowner wanted to opt out? Well, they, they always have the right to file an action. I think the way the... Uh, Senate Bill 451 that, that I testified on uh, really wanted to make sure that there was clear ownership. Mm -hmm. uh, remember, before this, we would have injected other types of uh, material and never given notice, never given any kind of uh, uh, payment. So all this other uh, injection that's going on in the state. So we decided to start off with this and, and in negotiating with the Farm Bureau came up with what everybody thought was a fair uh, way of compensating the landowner. Uh, but, but all of these things have been argued in the public policy space. Uh, so both at the federal level and the state level, uh, this is something that we really feel like is important to move forward on. So can we say, you know, that we've tested this over 50 years? Well, we would have never done anything new. There would be no advancement of technology if you first had to test it over 50 years. So uh, these are safe processes that have been used for 50 years, just not in this particular area. All right, Max? Yeah, if I can, uh, Professor Rupp, direct your attention to the issue in the winter of 2020 where a pipeline ruptured in Mississippi uh, carrying CO2 and, and the subsequent uh, damage and injuries that resulted from that. Uh, have you studied that or researched that particular incident? And could you give us some insight to, to what happened, uh, why it happened, and, and could something like that happen here? Have things changed enough in three years that would prevent what happened there from happening somewhere else? Yes. Um, so the Satardia, Mississippi uh, pipeline rupture, not explosion, uh, was was a uh, result of a, of a landslide, basically. So the, so there was a pipeline and an embankment, and there was flooding, and and the and the and the, the embankment caved in, and the, and the pipeline ruptured. Very important distinction. Those uh, sources for for pipelines and Denbury's uh, network down there are natural sources. The Jackson Dome is a volcanic intrusion that has a, a natural occurrence of, of CO2 and H2S and hydrogen sulfide. So that pipeline was carrying both CO2 as well as hydrogen sulfide. The first responders uh, were documented to, to, to note 
we came there, there was a green haze over that. This is the, this is the hydrogen sulfide. So when people were sent to the hospital and the like, there's a good chance that it was a combination of both CO2 and H2S. So it's pretty important to make important factual distinctions b between the composition of the gas and the, and the, and the, uh, and the event. Um, I'm not sure that the, the, what the fallout has ultimately resulted in. I'm sure my colleagues probably know more about that. Uh, PHMSA uh, looked into that. There was, there was some revisions to the, to the, uh, to the existing uh, statutes, and it, it certainly was an incentive for the revision to the, to the pipeline, uh, uh, CO2 pipeline uh, code that is, as it stands now. So important to, to, to remember that we're, we're, we're doing a little apples and oranges comparison when we, when we think about that. Yeah, go ahead, Greg, and then, and then Carolyn. The lessons, the lessons learned on that was that we'll have the technology to have it shut off automatically. Uh, so there was a, a period of time when they were still going out to the site to shut off a pipeline. So our system will have automatic shutoffs when there's a loss of pressure. So I think the technology is advanced. And, you know, it's the, ones, it's the one example people can cite to of all the carbon dioxide pipelines. There is one that they can point to. So uh, we're not in the same position. The technology is advanced. Uh, but, again, uh, we're going to need these types of technologies if we're ever going to move forward uh, with carbon sequestration. Uh, it's just a natural part of the process. Okay. Kerwin? Yeah, well, I would point point back to the earlier point I made, it was that incident in, in Mississippi that prompted the FIMSA investigation, and the result of the FIMSA investigation was we need to update the rules. So they began the rulemaking process. Again, no draft rule will be available for at least a year. That draft rule is then made available for public comment and input. That takes another year. So the outcome of the Mississippi incident was FIMSA, boy, FIMSA said, boy, we better look at these CO2 pipelines and put new rules and regulations in place, especially considering that there are developers out there considering thousands of miles of pipelines throughout the Midwest. So from our perspective, from an informed perspective, the responsible thing to do is wait until FIMSA has finalized those rules and provided guidance for safety and, and public health around pipelines before anything moves forward. All right, we have another question uh, from our audience. In sequestration consideration, what are alternatives for producing usable products from CO2? Possible dry ice, use for medical and shipping foods. That's what the question asks. Yeah, go ahead, John. The challenge is volume. Um, we, as a, we, as a, we as a nation emit you know, millions of tons of CO2 annually as a state, many millions of tons. Um, the, the, the volumes needed for, you know, dry ice or carbonated beverages or, or enhancing lightweight cement are so minuscule relative to these very uh, large uh, volumes that the use part goes, goes away pretty quickly. Um, the, only, the only really economical use is enhanced oil recovery. We don't use CO2 in the Illinois Basin for enhanced oil recovery. We could do that. That could be a, a possible use. But again, the, the volume would be a small percentage of the total CO2 that's produced. We're the most industrialized state in the nation. We produce a lot of stuff, and we produce a lot of carbon to do that. So uh, we, we've got a carbon management challenge that we need to work on. Okay. We have about 10 minutes to go in the program. We still have more questions. Uh, Coming in, see if I can find another one here. Um, maybe for the long-term benefits, what what benefits do you see this plan would bring to residents? That's for you, Greg. Why do you think uh, people should favor this plan? Well, I'll start with uh, the professor's point: is that Indiana is really committed uh, to manufacturing. Where per capita, we're the the largest state in terms of our uh, employment based on manufacturing. Uh, between steel and cement and some of the other uh, high-use uh, ethanol. Uh, the other part is, is the agricultural community. Uh, we're part of the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, so both for our feed and for uh, ethanol production. Uh, this plant is going to be a benefit uh, both on the agricultural and the sides that really deal with the need for uh, domestic fertilizer instead of importing fertilizer from other parts of the world. Uh, so it'll reduce the cost input. Uh, so the farmers in Indiana and all the people that are, need uh, our agricultural corn for livestock and ethanol, 
53% of our ethanol uh, or corn goes into the ethanol process. So all those things are benefits. And then we wouldn't be able to build this factory without carbon sequestration. They're not allowing. I mean, I, I challenge anybody to try to get a permit uh, to put this much CO2 up in the atmosphere. So if you don't want it up in the atmosphere, it's got to go someplace. And we're, we've got the technology now to put it in the ground uh, where it'll be safely stored. Another question from our audience. What's the impact on the soil conditions in the area where many wells are installed in the state? Are there any seismic events connected to well installations? Yes, John. Let me, let me, let me speak to that. So, so the soil profile is, is just a tiny veneer on top of the rock column, and we're talking literally a mile down of rigid bedrock. So the, the well bore and the sequestration process are not really going to impact the soil at all. That being said, the pipeline installation is a, a significant, can be a significant impact on the soil. So, so uh, how and where those pipelines are constructed relative to the use of the, of the, of the soil, especially in an agricultural setting, is key. And that's where the, the landowner is empowered to work with the, with, with the, with the company or the operator to say, hey, we, we, have, we have prime agricultural soil here, high productivity. We don't want it compacted. We don't want it a bad drainage. There's the areas where, where it really is uh, going to be impacted on the, on the pipeline, but not on the well, well bore itself. Another question from the audience. Uh, why did, uh, did WVR test on its property instead of the site where wells will actually go in? Well, we own the property, so it's an easier thing to bring in all the equipment. Uh, so it was done over the winter a few winters ago, uh, and it was a long-term process that would have been disruptive for a lot of people. So the wells that we'll be drilling in the injection sites aren't anything like that. Uh, the test well went down like 10,000 feet, uh, so it was, you know, a massive undertaking uh, that was really done by experts who wanted to see whether this would be a good area for carbon sequestration. Uh, so the federal government essentially funded all of that research because they want to make sure that we have, like in, in the Wabash Valley, we've got 2,000 feet of bedrock uh, that will cap uh, the carbon that's sequestered underneath that. Uh, so having to go down that far and that long a period of time, it was easier to do it on our site because we hadn't identified where the injection wells were. Okay, here's a question for Kerwin. Is there anything that would make you feel more comfortable with the injection? What are alternatives you would prefer or want to see explored? I don't know that I could answer that question because, you know, at, at a high level, uh, you know, the idea of CCS means, uh, you know, the continued extraction and burning of fossil fuels. So CAC, you know, believes, uh, much like the famous Tom Tolles cartoon from the Washington Post in 2007, the only, uh, the only sequestration that works is to leave it in the ground. And so CAC has for a long time has seen a much better path forward uh, with respect to energy. We don't need fossil fuels for electricity and to power our homes. Will we have carbon at heavy industrial processes, cement kilns, steel mills, and other places? More than likely, yes. There are some processes that are hard to decarbonize, uh, very difficult to decarbonize. But in our conversations with folks like uh, American Council for Energy Efficient Economy and other experts, there are some end uses for that captured carbon, especially when it comes to uh, chemical manufacturing and chemical uses at large industrial sites. So CAC's preferred path forward is to not monetize and make CO2 something of value because then what we are doing is encouraging uh, more CO2. And so we prefer to leave it in the ground and move forward. There's a better path. All right. One, one, another question is somewhat related to that. Um, it says, is this the right solution to climate change? Don't projects like this allow companies to keep polluting and avoid lowering their emissions? Yes. Yes? Okay, that was a short answer. Uh, Greg? Yeah, let me, the, the policy argument about this has gone on in Washington uh, for the last three administrations. And the, the people who have to come up with national public policy have realized that carbon sequestration is the only way uh, currently feasible to reduce our carbon emissions in the near term. In the future, could we come up with new technologies that don't require uh, carbon sequestration? We hope so. 
Uh, but if we still want to have automobiles that drive on gasoline, if we want to have power that's reliable and not subject to the wind and sun, you know, we're going to have to have these processes in place. So for the next, let's say, 25 to 50 years, this is the only path forward that the last three administrations have looked at this and said it's just a necessary part of our carbon uh, reduction processes. Okay, I want to give my co-host, Max Jones, a chance. If you have one last question, we have three minutes to go. Well, you know, I will. I, what, what I'll ask is uh, for Greg to uh, bring everyone up to date on the current status of the, uh, of the project at WVR. Uh, where is it right now, and what do we expect to see in coming months? Uh, or, ta- ta- or beyond. Yeah, take one minute, and then we'll give the other two one minute. So. Well, we're expecting the draft permits will be finalized here by the end of the year. Uh, that will allow us to start at least focusing on the injection wells. There's still a lot to be done, but we're hoping, I guess if you're wanting to shorten the answer, uh, we're hoping to be online at the end of 2026. Uh, so we'll be manufacturing anhydrous ammonia for the cor- eastern corn belt, and that's, uh, that's the plan. All right. Kerwin, one minute. Oh, goodness. Uh, Well, I do find it curious that they're focusing on the injection wells first rather than focusing on producing the CO2 to put into the injection wells. So I think that's that's cause for concern uh, and very curious. And I also find it interesting that, and we mentioned this in our our comments file that I did with respect to the air air permit, Um, but, you know, this was originally a fertilizer project, then it was a hydrogen project, you look at the Class 6 permit, there's no mention of fertilizer. And then suddenly, in February of 2023, it suddenly became a fertilizer project once again. But what we're hearing is we're focusing on the injection wells. So that's a cause for concern is, is this project really ever going to happen beyond just these injection wells? And is this just a place to house CO2 from other sources? All right. John, last minute. Car- carbon capture and storage is a, is a piece. It's a, a part of the carbon management uh, suite of technologies that we have. We, ha- we have a, a alternative fuels. We have uh, biofuels. We have different practices in the agricultural community. It's a component. It's not a silver bullet. Uh, again, I would re- reiterate that we in Indiana have some very important point sources of, of, of carbon emissions that need to be managed, um, our steel and, and, and cement and, and, and uh, petrochemicals for sure. Um, there are aspects of how this can work with hydrogen. We've just been uh, awarded a, a giant consortium of award of X billion dollars for a hydrogen hub that Indiana, Northwest Indiana is going to be part of it. CCS will be part of that. So it's, it's, it's something that can be managed. It's an industrial process. We have lots of experience as a society managing industrial processes and managing the risk associated with those. So I think it's an important piece to, to, to consider. All right. I want to thank all three of our, our guests today for being here. Uh, John and Kerwin and, and Greg, thank you very much for yeah, being for here with us happy, today. Happy we to have a lot of help here. Uh, I'm, we have about eight people from WFIU, WTIU who helped us on this program. Certainly want to thank my friend Max Jones for co-hosting thank today you. and the folks here at the Petty's Pit Stop for uh, WFIU News. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thank you all for coming out today. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. <laughs>